the privilege it's ours to come together again this evening continues to be a great one and we look forward to the assemblies in which we can understand not only the encouragement of one another but certainly the greatest of all to express to God our thanksgiving our appreciation and for what he has brought to bear for us Brother Dennis, she led us in a prayer a moment ago, and as a part of that, took our mind to the scene of the cross, in which we're so thankful for that which the Master did, willfully going to such an excruciating event and end of His life for us. Tonight, as we give thought to questions and answers, already the third installment this calendar year, and again, some excellent questions that have been offered, and we'll give our attention to these during the course of our time together tonight. As always, I would invite you to note this very general introduction in which I would point out that the questions are those that you have asked, either by virtue of direct asking to me or perhaps have placed them in that box there in the foyer. And as always, I'll encourage you to continue to do that so that uh, that next month and the months following we'll be able to continue to have a session of questions and answers. Several questions tonight, and the first one, reads like this. Is it possible that there is a huge gap of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2? Was earth created and remained in a state of void for a very long time before God began organizing and finishing the creation? Now this next slide will begin to point us in the direction of giving some thought to that, but I hope that you can imagine quite often is a thrust to that question. Those two verses again read as follows. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. One of the considerations about the first pair of verses of that group that we just read is that, again, the text doesn't say, at least in that place, how long the earth remained in this state of void. Note again it says, in the beginning He created the heaven and the earth. And then it comments that the earth was void. So how long did it stay this way? Millions upon millions, perhaps, of years. And only then, after that fact, then did God begin organizing that which had already been in existence. As you might well imagine on the slide, one of the approaches that's quite often used to allow an amount of time sufficient for general evolution is the very thing I just mentioned. Suppose that, again, God initially created the earth, but that it remained in this state of void, or that is to say, incompletion, for an exceedingly long period of time. And only then did He, in a period of six days, organize everything that you and I now appreciate, that is to say, the firmament on day two, the land creatures in terms of insects and other matters on the days that followed. Is that the way that it worked? Well, tonight I'm going to share with you some thoughts that I think would be helpful as we at least try to give an appreciation to the nature of that question. The name given to that overall appreciation I just mentioned is the gap theory. The gap theory. There's a big gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. 
Does the Bible sustain that idea? Is it true that the Word of God will perhaps be consistent with the appearance of an exceedingly long period of time between that pair of verses? As you can begin to notice on that slide, one of the most elementary appreciations that's used by those who would say the answer is yes is the verbs that are used. In verse 1, it says, God created. The Hebrew verb that appears there is the verb bara, <clears throat> B-A-R-A, at least the way it would look in English. As you can see on the slide, that word literally means to create. It means to initiate something new. It has the idea of bringing into being something that has not been into being before. You can probably tell on that slide, it's very, it's very interesting to notice that any time the Word of God makes use of that particular phrase, it gives an emphasis to the one doing the initiating, and it's used exclusively with respect to God. That is to say, only God can initiate in that way. Only God can bring things new this way. Mankind cannot do it. Well, that stands in distinction to what comes next. For if that's the verb appearing in verse 1, what's the verb appearing in verses 2 and in many cases the verses that follow? The verb there, as you can see, is in English. It looks like A-S-A, Asa. That word means to make. It means to fashion. You can well tell it might be used to take something that already exists and reorganize it. To say to take something that exists and redirect it for another purpose or usage. Well, thus, there are those who would say, then look, even the text would indicate He created in day one, but He only reorganized to some extent in those circumstances that followed it. May I point out that that word Asa, as it appears, and that word Bara, as it appears... I've given you a number of Bible texts in which those references actually occur. For example, thinking again about Barah, in Isaiah 65, verse 17, the prophet there highlighted with the message, of course, of God, that I create new heavens and a new earth. Well, that's, of course, borrowed in the New Testament and used to talk about the eternal life you and I will enjoy, but God borrowed it. He created it. It's something He did and that He shall do. Another example would be that Jeremiah 31, 22, a reference to the fact that a woman will compass a man to, in fact, bring a man into the world. And you and I know Mary gave birth to the, to the, uh, to, to the one we call Jesus. But, of course, that's an activity God brought about. Men could never have done it. On the other hand, the word Asa. Isn't it true that Noah built that ark? He put together the wood, and he put together the other pitch and the features about it, and he fashioned the ark. So notice, here's something man did. He, in fact, brought that about. Well, by this point, we might be wondering, so is there some legitimacy to the thought that there is a large difference between chapters 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 2, in light even of the verb tenses? But before we draw any conclusion on that, we need to go a step further. And so on this next verse, I've brought something before our attention that we should certainly keep in mind. And it's the following. These two words, bara on the one hand, asa on the other, 
are rather interestingly used interchangeably in many ways in the other parts of the creation account. I've given you a few examples of that. We've already pointed out in Genesis 1 verse 1, bara is used. You'll notice in verse 21, bara is used again, but this time with respect to the events on day 5 of creation. And they're used again with respect to some of the events on day 6. Again, with regard to man's creation, when God created man. So we have some cases where bar is used, but look at how often Asa is used. Again, God's the one doing this. Look at verse number 7. When it says the firmament was established, there the word Asa is the one used. So day 2, God Asa'd. Day 1, He had borrowed. Are we to make then some fundamental distinction in these, or are we simply appreciating that the words appear to be used rather interchangeably? Another one, not only in verse number 7 with respect to the firmament, verse number 16, in verse 25, and verse 26, and also verse 31. By now, I would hope that you would see with me that we, at this point, it seems, cannot draw any basis, at least on those words alone, that would say there's a huge gap of time between verses 1 and 2. If the words are used interchangeably, it doesn't mean that one would need to appreciate that is a, alone is a reason for the large gap if there's even one between verses 1 and 2. But let's go even further. There are some other places in Scripture. Could I invite you to note Psalm 96, verse number 5, where a reference to the creation occurs. And we might take a careful and very interesting observation to what is said there. Psalm 96, verse number 5. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord, that's the God of heaven, made the heavens. Now, you'll again observe here that this word that's referred to is bara. Interestingly enough, in 1 Chronicles 16, as that same word occurs, we're reminded that in regard to the characteristic of the creation, that this word is used, whereas in some instances in Genesis 1, it's Asa that's used. They appear to be used interchangeably in a very strong way, not only in the prophetical books, but even some of the books that were earlier than it. For that reason, let's close this particular question with a reference to Exodus chapter 20. In that chapter, we have what appears to be, it would seem to me, the deciding text that allows us to conclude this. May I read Exodus chapter 20? As we read a portion of the verses of this, let's keep in mind this was that scene of events in which the people of Israel were at Mount Sinai. The law was given to them that you and I would recognize in part containing the Ten Commandments, and this is what it says. Beginning in verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it." Now, in this instance, I know we often make reference to the 11th verse and give some emphasis in it. 
to various portions which are clearly very important. But at least in answer to the question that's been placed before us tonight, could I emphasize again that there the inspired writer said that in six days the God of heaven made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is. That included not only the land, and remember in Genesis 1, there was an initial statement of the creation of earth, but it was void. And then there was organization that followed it. The inspired writer here said that that creation of heaven and earth, the sea, the land, and all that in the is took place in six days. It would seem to me that one directly answers our question. There was no gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Here, the same writer Moses in the book of Exodus said that all of it took place in six days. Now, perhaps it's another lesson for another time about the emphasis of what were these days. But at this point, could I go ahead and say it was six 24-hour days, not unlike the days you and I experience and appreciate even today. So question number two, having given some thought to this opening one from the book of Genesis... This question is asked in the following way. Is it necessary for a prayer to end with the words, every time in Jesus' name? A very thoughtful question. A very good question. We might we at least begin by reminding ourselves about the nature of the efficacy and the power that's connected to prayer. And so it is in James 5.16, we are immediately reminded that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We understand then how that prayer is meaningful. It is not only intriguing, but it is so soothing to the soul. But now with that, the person has asked a very good question. We seemingly are accustomed to a way of doing things in which we anticipate that the gentleman leading the prayer will conclude it with something to the effect of, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the particular question here is about that phrase, in Jesus' name. You can begin to see on the slide that we recognize from the places and the teachings connected to that word that there is much to be said about it. But may we never forget the thrust that goes with it. Having to do with what does the meaning of the phrase mean? What is the significance of it? You can begin to see in verses such as Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks in the God and the Father by Him. So the reference to the name is another way of referring to authority vested in that name. It's not that the words themselves are some magical enterprise. It's of that which they suggest, that which they connote, that which they mean. Notice again in Colossians 3.17, when you and I thus carry out the things of the church in a way according to the authority of the Christ, we are doing so thus according to His name. Well, may I suggest that idea is going to be a critical part of leading us through the thinking about the particulars of this particular question. In Acts chapter 3, verses 6 through 16, There's another rather powerful example. You remember the scene. There was a lame man at at the beautiful gate. And you might recall that this one was asking alms of Peter and John. And Peter rather 
point blank said, I don't have anything like that. But what I do have, I'll be happy to give you. And he proceeded to heal the man, and he was quick to say, it wasn't me. In fact, Peter proceeded to preach a rather powerful sermon and said, in the name of the Christ is the one by which these things happened. So again, that which took place was by the name of or in the authority of the Christ. Now, with that in mind, you and I should take careful note that there is certainly something to be noticed about the usage of those words without the understanding of the meaning that goes behind them. Perhaps the clearest example of that is Acts 19. Would you then turn with me to the 19th chapter of Acts and look at what happened when someone used those words without the knowledge of the meaning that went behind them. In verse 13 of that chapter and the verses that follow, you and I recall this. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. Let's pause to identify. Here were some vagabond Jews, wandering or strolling Jews, as the text would in fact present it. And these, as the text would identify, called on the name of Christ over these people in that area. What happened? Next verse. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds." I would just offer the thought that here was an instance in which some called upon the name of the Lord without the recognition of the power behind it. And in so doing, an evil spirit leaped forth and caused some damage and some harm. So too, you and I might note today that when we use the words in Jesus' name in a prayer, may we keep in mind the meaning behind it. Those aren't just some magical words to end a prayer with. May we ever realize that those should indicate the basis of our life as we approach the throne of God. So am I living my life in accordance with the authority of the Christ and living as nearly as I'm able to what He would encourage of me and demand of me? And in that way, we would have every right to then approach and say, In Jesus' name I ask this. In the name of Christ I beseech these things to again simply mouth the words without the understanding is not consistent with the teaching of the Word of God, at least on that point. But that being said, let's at least close that thinking like this. There are other particular ways in which that idea might be presented. We could in fact praise or think things like, as we pray that Thy will will always be done. That we could pray that through the nature of the name of Christ, we pray these things. It would seem that in the New Testament, we certainly would wish to ask in accordance to those ideas. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, verse 22. In the midst of that book of 1 John, we encounter these ideas. 
I'll begin reading in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Now there, a rather amazing thing is said that those who are children of God, as they approach God in prayer with confidence, doing so with our heart, believing that which we ask, we're told in verse 22, whatever we ask, we have the right to expect. Not because we've said in Jesus' name, but because we do His commandments. And we live, you see, in a way consistent with the profession that we've made. So perhaps that's given some interest or at least direction to the consideration of the question. Question number three. This evening, what might we say about another very intriguing question that's based in part upon something that was raised in in one of our Bible study classes on Sunday morning just a few weeks ago? The question is this, how old was Solomon when he began to reign as king? Now, you might recall that was asked, very appropriately so, and there's much that, in fact, might be said about it. Would you be turning to 1 Kings chapter 3? And we will at least read a passage there that's offered some thought about the nature of at least a suggested answer. In 1 Kings chapter 3, you might recall that King David had just recently died, and his son Solomon was now the ruler, the new ruler of the nation of Israel. And in that place, Solomon had these words to say. May I direct your attention to verse number 7. And now, O Lord my God, Thou hast made Thy servant king instead of David my father. And I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And so based on these words of Solomon, there are some who have thus supposed that he was a, just a little child, maybe age seven or eight or perhaps nine. Others have at least allowed maybe 12 or 13. At the top of this slide, I've at least invited you to notice it's not uncommon to find the most common estimate to be somewhere between 12 and 14. Well, this evening, may I be quick to say, as far as I'm able to tell, the Bible does not directly give us the answer to this question. So the best that I'm able to do is to provide some measure of estimate. I've chosen to do that by using some of the chronological features of the book of 2 Samuel. You may want to be turning there, but even if not, I'll try to highlight it and summarize some of it in a way that will at least allow a rough estimate. So I have put it beneath the heading of some considerations from 2 Samuel. First of all, we have already given emphasis in those Bible study periods that we understand well that David first reigned as king in Hebron. That was the place that was, in fact, his his capital or his place of, of central government. That lasted for seven and a half years. You read that with me again in the opening chapters of 2 Samuel. So that now means we recognize, as you can see on the slide, some things that follow follow chronologically from that point. The first one is this. At the time David moved his capital to Jerusalem, almost immediately thereafter he moved the Ark of the Covenant from its previous location so that it too would be in Jerusalem. So that happened again in 
that particular time of his reign consistent with the movement of his capital to Jerusalem. The movement of the ark happened very shortly thereafter. Now that again took place in the sixth chapter of Second Samuel. But as you notice the events of chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9, you find that one of them is a summary chapter and is not detailed with regard to a continuing procession of events at that moment. Otherwise, in chapters 7 and 9, we find other references which again at least give us the following observation. Look back to the opening phrase of chapter 1, rather chapter 10, verse number 1. 2 Samuel 10, verse number 1. And it came to pass after this. When the Bible uses that phrase, it seems to have at least a reference to some reasonably brief passage of time. It came to pass after this. So again, quite often one wouldn't imagine that 25 years have passed between the events of chapter 9 and those of chapter 10. You furthermore wouldn't even anticipate a somewhat shorter period of time than that. So at this point on the slide, I've invited you to note this. If we then appreciated that what took place in chapter 6 and 7 was in the 7th and perhaps early 8th year of David's reign, when again we appreciate the events of moving the ark to Jerusalem, then we now perhaps go a little bit forward in time and understand the events that are, going, that are going to follow it. Because look what quickly happens. In chapter 11, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. We remember that a baby born to him in Bathsheba then dies. And then, it seems, four other sons born to he and Bathsheba rather immediately also take place. I say all that to say, look at what that would mean at the bottom. If then, based on what I just said, we could then appreciate, it would seem reasonable to suppose that maybe David's committing adultery with Bathsheba would have taken place in perhaps the 11th or 12th year of his reign. We've allowed a passage of time, perhaps three years, and as we do that, that now means that the things that follow would tell us this, that child then born to David and Bathsheba would have died in David's 12th or 13th year of reign. If that be true... Then again, the other four sons born to him in Bathsheba, both First Chronicles and Second Samuel, named them in order, and Solomon in both cases is the fourth son. So if they were born in consecutive years, we are given their names, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. So if again it was in David's twelfth or thirteenth year that that earlier son died, then that would mean just adding one year for each of the remaining names would bring us to the fact that likely Solomon would have been born in roughly the 17th or maybe the 18th year of David's reign. If that be so, then you and I remember David's total reign was 40 years. That would have meant that Solomon would then have been in his early 20s at the time he began his reign. Now again, that's an estimate, and surely some time can be slipped in in various places, but it would seem to me that he was not 12. It would seem to me he surely was at 7 or 8. Probably early 20s would have been likely how old Solomon was when he began his reign when his daddy died. Now that might take us back to the text we read earlier. What then did Solomon mean when he said, I am but a young child? 
that phrase would have reference to his level of understanding. My father has been the one judging all these years. I haven't been that one. I'm still inexperienced. I am not schooled or at least prepared in my own mind to take up this mantle of work. It would seem like his reference to being a young child would again be bored to the point of inexperienced, not quite in his mind ready to take up the level of effort. So as we've approached that third question, we've at least arrived at an estimate. I can find no better appreciation that will do any better in the Word of God. It is fair to say that the chronology of First Chronicles also harmonizes with that rather beautifully because some of the references to time really are stated in an almost identical way. Question number four. As we come to the fourth question of the evening, this one reads like this. Did David introduce mechanical instruments of music into the worship of ancient Israel? If this was not approved by God, why did God allow it to continue? I hope we can all appreciate the gravity of that question. Another outstanding question. It's easy enough to imagine and to appreciate that the introduction of mechanical instruments of music into the worship of God is a topic that is frequently of great interest. To this day, we well understand many religious groups choose to, in fact, notably use mechanical instruments of music in worship. As you and I turn back to the days of the Old Testament, there is no real question but what they appeared in some form, and in fact appeared in some sense rather extensively. The question, though, is this, and it's a better question. It's not the question of where they used, it's a question of who introduced them. Was it God that did it, or was it David that did it? I might begin this discussion by saying this. There is a rather interesting distinction, in fact, a controversy. There are many who will say that God did it. And you may have noticed that a bulletin that was handed out, and in fact, one that was seen not too many weeks ago, had that idea contained within it, in which it was asserted by members of the Church of Christ that in fact it was God that introduced it. I'm going to disagree. I do not think God did it. Allow me to show you some verses I think that might help us, at least in thinking about the appreciation that goes with it. There are a number of Old Testament passages that make reference to the usage of those mechanical instruments. Let's read some of them. Let's just let the text do the talking. In fact, I have placed the references actually on the slide with some of the verse portions contained already. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 5 and 6, the wording is exactly of this form. And I've again taken out portions of it, listed it on the slide for your consideration. 1 Chronicles 16, I'll begin reading in verse number 4. And he, that he is David, and he appointed certain of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord and to record, and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel, Asaph the chief, and next to him Zechariah, Jeal and Shemiramoth, and Jehiel and Mattathiah, and Eliab and Benaiah and Obedidim, and Jeal with psalteries and with harps, but Asaph made a sound with cymbals. 
Now, based on that passage, you notice that the ark has now come to Jerusalem. We appreciate that the organization of the worship, and we appreciate that the Levites were charged with doing certain things. And then David said, I appointed Jeiel, and I in fact charged others to use cymbals and harps and psalteries. Let's read on. Turn over to chapter 23, verse 5. Same book. This is another set of verses that provides some description for us. And just selecting at least that verse and the one that follows it, it reads, Moreover, 4,000 were porters, and 4,000 praised the Lord with the instruments which I made to praise therewith. Now you may notice the text says, which I made. The I refers to David. David claimed that I made them. Look at the next verse. And David divided them into courses among the sons of Levi, namely Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And then the verses that follow go on to describe some of the activities of those particular courses. Perhaps the next verse, two chapters over in chapter 25. This time, look with me at verse number 6. All these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, in the words of God, to lift up the horn. And God gave to Heman fourteen sons and three daughters. All these were under the hands of their father for song in the house of the Lord, with cymbals and psalteries and harps for the service of the, God, of the house of God, according to the king's order. Did you notice? The king's order is the one behind this. But the king was David according to the king's order to Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman. Now that one has at least prepared us for some additional observations. Turn over to 2 Chronicles 29. So in that particular book, we now encounter verse number 26. It says, "...and the Levites stood with the instruments of David." And the priests with the trumpets. And Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. We'll just pause at this point and say, David had been dead for a long time by the events of that chapter. But did you notice, as it referred back to the origin of the things taking place, the king at the time was Hezekiah. And verse 6 said that Levites, even at that time, stood with the instruments of David. That is to say, David's name is connected to these. His name is attached to them as if by authority they rested with him. Now, as you think about Second Chronicles 29, jump two verses forward to verse 27. And Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David king of Israel. Who ordained them? The text said David did. Whose name's connected to them? The text says David's was. Based upon that set of verses, it would seem to me that we are in position to thus make at least a conclusion. And on this next slide, may I point out the thrust of the Hebrew word that's used in some of the verses, especially the verbs connected to those. The Hebrew words indicate possession. In other words, when it says, I made them, 
the possession was connected to David. It's not that he merely gave statement about opinion concerning them, but the Hebrew word's a bit stronger than that. Not only that, as you give thought to that usage of the days of Hezekiah, it's perhaps interesting to notice that at least in that set of verses, mention of the name of God is not to be found. Now, may I say, I have not read all the verses, and to be fair, could I point you to verse 25 of Second Chronicles 29. That is the verse that's used by those on the other side of the answer I'm giving tonight. Their sole verse that seems to be the one to which they turn is this one. May I read it? And he, that's again the king, and he set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and with psalteries and with harps according to the commandment of David. There again it reads just like before so far. And of Gad the king's seer and Nathan the prophet, for so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. That's the only verse, the ending sentence of it at least, that's used to say that those instruments were, instruments were commanded by God. But did you note something? There was more than one verb usage in that verse. Which one did God command? Did He command to praise God or did He command the instruments? Those who, of course, refer to the latter claim, well, there it is. God commanded the instruments. Are you sure? Back in Leviticus, we notice God commanded the worship and He commanded the organization of it and He commanded to praise the God of heaven. Could it not then be that the reference to the closing part of that verse is to the worshipful activities taking place with the understanding that that's what God commanded? David's the one that added the instruments. David's the one that authorized them. That would seem to me by far the more consistent way to look at all of these verses, to put them together and appreciate them that way, for we know there's no contradiction. Now, perhaps it is with that in mind, you now come to one of the latter parts on that particular slide. Turn over to Amos chapter 6. We have another reference to these, and this one is in some ways even stronger. In the sixth chapter of Amos... Again, this was many, many years after David had died. We find the following statement. Beginning in verse 1 of that chapter, there is a woe pronounced upon a number of classes of individuals, but we'll just select one of the classes that's mentioned. And note verse 5. Woe to them that chant to the sound of the vial and invent to themselves instruments of music like David. Now, you'll notice there, clearly this is displeasing to God. Whatever is taking place is displeasing to God because woe is pronounced on people who are doing it. Now, in particular, you'll notice a woe is pronounced upon those who invent to themselves instruments of music like David. I don't believe any of us would say that the usage of an instrument at the house tomorrow night, strumming on the guitar, is wrong that tomorrow night, playing a trumpet at the house, there's nothing wrong with that. But may I say, when it comes to something directing praise to God, when it comes to something along that line, you'll notice what David had done, Amos said, was not right. It was not good. It was not approved. 
So then the latter part of the question, if that be the case, why did God permit it? Why is it that He seemingly condoned it? Well, that's another part that's a rather great question. I'll just offer to you the thought at the bottom of that slide. There were a number of things that took place in the Old Testament that were not in keeping with God's plan. They were not in keeping with that which He wished to be the case, but He nonetheless tolerated it. You can name several of them with me. Why did He permit polygamy the way He did? Men having many wives, lots of concubines. Why didn't He just strike all those guys dead up front and stop that at the very outset? What about the nature connected to other behaviors, not just that one? When Israel asked for a king, if it was not his will, why did he permit it? And yet he did. Is it not the case we seemingly notice that in God's infinite will and sovereignty, He will permit the human family to engage in their actions and do that which is often in their mind. He has given them His will, and He will judge them in light of it. But He will often tolerate these things until He brings about perhaps some new arena. That's what He did in the divorce case, wasn't He? Did Jesus say, when they asked the Lord, well, why did Moses grant a divorcement the way He did? Jesus said, from the very beginning, it was not so. So God allowed it. He tolerated it. But all the while, He regulated it. But the time would come, He would do away with it under, of course, the perfect law of Christ. Perhaps there's an element of that that's a better question than I'm able to answer. Why He tolerated it? We just simply know He did because He did it in many other ways too. But we now appreciate so easily those mechanical instruments. May we end this discussion like this. Every record of which we have credence has powerfully put before us this truth. When the New Testament church assembled, did they use any mechanical instruments of music? We know they were familiar with them from the worship in the Old, Old Testament because the Psalms even mentioned them. But when it came time to worship in the church, when it came time under the guidance of those inspired apostles like Peter and John and James and Paul and the others, did they ever use a mechanical instrument? The answer is no. Those who have researched this have strongly indicated to us the introduction of the first mechanical instrument likely didn't come until the 10th century a full thousand years after Jesus had died, a thousand years after the apostles were no longer here, that's when the instruments came in the worship of the church. May I say there's no Bible authority for it. Even they in the New Testament era, they worshiped without the instrument mechanically. The only instrument they used was the one mentioned in Ephesians 5.19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. The heart was the, the instrument mentioned there, and that's the only one they used. And that's the only one we use, because that's the one the Bible authorizes. And so tonight, as we've looked at four questions, I trust that we've at least been encouraged to reflect on some of the considerations, everything from the age of Solomon when he began to reign, to the nature of the introduction of mechanical instruments by David, to the characteristic features that connected us to there is no gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. All of those things encourage us by the Word of God. Tonight, as we close this lesson, we, as always, would wish 
to make the opportunity so easily available that if there's someone in the audience that would wish to make a public response to the gospel's call of invitation, we'd love to make that not only allowable, but also something encouraged. And so we're going to stand and sing a hymn that Brother Joy has announced. And as we do that, we will thus make the Lord's invitation accessible. If you're not right with the Lord tonight, realize Jesus died for you, and He wants you to live for Him and to go to heaven for all eternity. But in order to do that, as one who has never approached the great physician for the first time, as we learned this morning, you've got to obey the gospel, meaning belief and repentance, confession and baptism. But as you might need to return to your first love, that too can be so readily accomplished because we understand the Bible also describes that occurring in Acts chapter 8. When Simon the sorcerer had tried to buy what was not able to be bought with money, Peter told him he'd committed a sin. He told him he had to repent. We easily observe that that's exactly what he wished to do and then besought Peter to pray for him, and we'll do that tonight. If we could help you tonight by prayer on behalf of your acknowledgement of sin and repentance thereof, we'd be delighted to do it. If we could help anyone in those ways tonight, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?